0: Hi everyone, this is Kat with apologies for my scratchy voice. I have COVID again. What you're about to hear is a conversation with Amna Khaled. Amna is the host of the podcast Banished. You can find her at banished.substack.com. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to hear more like it, please consider subscribing to the Feminine Chaos Substack at femchaospod.substack.com. For $5 per month, you'll get access to premium content, including extended cuts of public episodes, as well as exclusive episodes just for paid subscribers. Thank you for your support, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. would you like to introduce yourself? uh, Tell us a little bit about who you are and where you work.
1: Sure. Um, Well, first, I'm delighted to be on the podcast, not least because I am feminine and highly chaotic in the (laughs) sense that I cause chaos more than anything else. But I'm a professor at Carlton College. I teach history. And um, one of my passions is free speech and academic freedom. So from that point of view, I've been commenting on what's been going on more broadly in the public sphere, not just in academia.
0: Broadly and bravely, um, you know, we were talking just before just before recording started about how risky it is to be involved in even tiptoeing up to the line of uh, supporting free speech in academia. It's become an increasingly unpopular position because of its perceived associations with right-wing politics, which I think is really weird um, because I remember when it was not like that at all. It was the polar opposite. But today we are talking about a slightly free speechy issue, although it starts with a very convoluted, internecine media drama. And um, if you are in media or even media adjacent, um, if you follow me on Twitter or you know any media folks, you've probably bumped up against this story already and know maybe like the broad strokes of it. So I'm gonna just try to sum it up as cleanly as possible and I'm probably gonna do a really bad job. But <laughs> <laughs> on June 3rd, and we are talking on June 13th, so it's been 10 days since this whole sorted thing kicked off. A Washington Post reporter named Dave Wagle retweeted this joke. All women are bi, you just have to figure out if it's polar or sexual. So, okay, a little bit of a, a dad joke, maybe a little bit sexist. Felicia who who is another reporter at the Washington Post, tweeted a screenshot of this retweet. Um, this wasn't Dave Wiggles' joke, it was another comedian, or rather a comedian, Dave Wiggles, a reporter. So Felicia Sanmez, co-worker, tweets a screenshot of the retweet. It says, fantastic to work at an outlet where retweets like this are allowed. Um, And this story is really about Sanmez, who is sort of hard to explain as a media figure, because although she is a reporter, what she's better known for is not her reporting, but her ability to kind of make herself into the story and to insert herself into the discourse. Here's who Felicia Sanmez is. Uh, she was an accuser in a Me Too case against a guy named John Kamen that I'm not going to get into the details of. Suffice to say, I think there are a lot of questions about the legitimacy of these particular accusations. It was a really weird case. Emily Yaffe did a really good deep dive reported piece on it for a reason that I will link to in the show notes if you want to read more about it. But this case, this Me Too allegation, has really shaped Sanmez's career. Um, And she comes – well, there's no really – polite way of saying this she comes off as sort of obsessed with sexual assault and especially with her relationship to it with her status as a victim she talks about it all the time she actually sued the washington post over it She claims that she was barred from covering stories about sexual assault because she is a survivor. The Washington Post said that they were banning her not because she is a survivor, but because her public persona, her Twitter feed and so on, gives the appearance of being unable to be objective on the topic. And the judge in that case actually did recently side with the newspaper and dismissed it. I think Sanmez is appealing. I think personally that this was probably the right call, whether or not Sanmez can be objective. The way she behaves online has really sort of done a number on her credibility. I think most people looking at her Twitter feed would have serious questions about whether she was capable of being impartial. Um, And an example of this, which is going to bring us kind of full circle back to the question of Twitter and what's acceptable to say on there if you are a Washington Post reporter, is in 2020... On the day that Kobe Bryant and his daughter and some other folks were killed in a helicopter crash, within a very short time of that news breaking, Felicia Sanmez tweeted a link to a Daily Beast story about the rape allegations against Bryant. And she received backlash to that tweet, at which point she sort of pivoted to tweeting about how the backlash was re-traumatizing her and how this was just another example of how women who were survivors of sexual assault can never speak up on it and so on and so forth. Okay, so that's 2020. At the time, The Washington Post said that Felicia Sonmez had violated their social media policy uh, it was sort of unclear how, and this will be a recurring theme, but there was a massive outcry media-wide. She was suspended and then reinstated within about a day um, amid you know a lot of uh, support from fellow journalists, including, crucially, Dave Wagle. But this is the context for her response to this retweet of the bisexual bipolar joke. She was still upset about her suspension two years ago, and it was basically subtextually a call for Wiggle to be suspended to suffer consequences for his tweet in the same way as she did. So we're now, it's it's June 3rd when this all begins. For the next several days, uh, Felicia-sama has kind of goes on a little bit of a rampage about this. She's clearly very obsessed with it. Washington Post ends up suspending Dave Wagle for a month without pay, which makes this probably the most expensive retweet of a stupid joke in the history of the world. Um, But by then, other people, including some other journalists at Washington Post, have gotten involved. Some are in support of Sanmez, but some are being rather critical of her, telling her that she's being a bully, telling her that she needs to stop being cruel. And at this point, she begins also demanding that Washington Post officially sanction anyone who has criticized her publicly. Um, So coming to the end of this, this went on for a full week. It made the paper look completely dysfunctional. All this time, Sanmez has been continuously tweeting about how the Washington Post has an entrenched culture of misogyny, how it's very awful to work there. Other media outlets are reporting that she's been asked to stop tweeting and won't. Internal emails are being leaked. Just an absolute mess. Uh, And then on Thursday, which would have been June 9th, I believe the news broke that she had been fired for insubordination. So That's the story. And obviously, this is a huge mire of gossip, and that is fun in its own way. But what I think is most interesting about this, and I imagine Amna does too, uh, is the implications that this event has for free speech, and especially where free speech intersects with workers' rights, with the question of whether your employer should be able to punish you for things you say and do when you're off the clock. So having now talked for a million years. Amna, what do you see as the most salient issue in all of this? Wow.
1: Um, I mean, I, I'm glad you sketched it all out for the listeners, because it's a, it is a really convoluted story. And it's been developing um even as you and I connected to possibly speak about this, there have been developments since then. Let me first begin by saying that I take no pleasure in anyone being fired or being sanctioned. The loss of livelihood and um, any kind of sanctions on in your income are obviously very grave so this is not about vilifying someone or slinging mud on someone but i will say i think there are some serious issues over here one is what kind of freedom do you have when you're off the clock to say what you want to say this ties closely to my interest in academic freedom because this is something that happens to professors all the time like what can you and can't you say once you're um you know indulging in extramural speech now in this case i think you know the joke was a joke, and I'm probably going to be highly unpopular for saying and articulating this position. I'm not that offended by the joke. As a woman who identifies as a feminist, yes, it's a little off-cutter, but jokes tend to be, and that's in the nature of humor. I think the way we're policing humor these days is is troubling because we're leaving very little room for, for humor to actually um, take root. But I think this kind of, I don't know what it's like to work at the Washington Post, so I can't comment on the culture within But I did find Sanmez's vilifying uh, of this retweet just obnoxious because... People should be able to retweet whatever they want to retweet. I mean, the best part is this isn't even his own joke. This is just something he's retweeting. And the assumption there is that he's retweeting it because he's endorsing it. Now, that assumption in itself makes me a little uncomfortable because there are times when I retweet things, not because I am endorsing them, but just because I'm either shocked by them and I'm trying to amplify like, hey, did you see this this is obnoxious or because i'm laughing at them or because i am trying to be satirical so that in itself is the assumption that a retweet means endorsement is a problem on top of that i think the washington post sanctioning of wiggol suspending him for a month without pay i also find a little um not a little, very heavy handed. It raises serious questions about what journalists can and cannot say when they're not working. And that is a limitation of on freedom of expression that should be concerning, particularly to a newspaper. As far as her firing is concerned, again, I don't know what the Washington Post's policy is in terms of social media, but I think it is legitimate to say that the ways in which she has behaved on social media, both prior to this incident and during it, doesn't doesn't cast her in good light. She definitely seems to have some kind of axe to grind and is using social media as a way to do that. And that doesn't sit well with me. So let me stop there and I'll let you interject and then we'll continue.
0: Sure. I mean, I want to, to spiral off from all kinds of things that you've said, but I think where I would like to start is with the idea of Retweeting a joke, which to me is basically um, on social media, it is akin to retelling a joke, which is mm-hmm. such a basic human behavior. You hear a joke, you find it funny or provocative, or maybe you just think other people might. And so mm-hmm. you tell it to your friends. Um, and I, I wonder if the policy at Washington Post is that you cannot retell a joke in this form Are you also barred from retelling a joke in other forms and what makes it fundamentally different to retweet the joke on your twitter feed versus be overheard telling a joke to your friends at a bar or what if you i mean to take it a step further are a washington post reporter and you do stand up comedy as a hobby what if you're in fact writing your own material and some of it is a little off color even though it's very funny um you know can your employer reasonably dictate what sort of jokes you tell on the stage because at no point are you not considered a representative of the place where you work.
1: I mean, Kat, I just find it obnoxious that any institution should be able to control your speech in your own time. And regardless of whether, you know, I mean, as long as you're not representing them, I really don't see what the problem is. Now, I know that this gets into murky waters, because there are people who have behaved in some morally reprehensible ways in their own time. But this is a joke. I think perspective is key over here. This is not someone who is sexually harassing someone. This is not someone who is assaulting someone. This is a joke. It may be off color, like I said, it is a little off color. But Jokes tend to be. And if mm-hmm. I doubt the Washington Post has uh, an explicit policy of whether you can or cannot retweet a joke, right? They may now, I don't know, after this incident. But, <laughs> but but you're quite right to point out the fact that there are sanctions for someone for doing that raises questions about how does this chill the speech of journalists when they're not on duty? What does it mean for what they can and cannot do? And what kind of power are we giving these organizations organizations and institutions where we work, are they beginning to own our time and what we can say when we're not at work? And should that not be deeply concerning to us as a society? Because journalists should be able to say what they need to say whenever they need to say it.
0: Yeah, you know, it strikes me too, that this is in part down to an erosion of the boundaries between one's workplace and personal life kind of across the board. Mm. You know, we live in a time where your employer can reach you and often expects to be able to reach you, you know, at home over the weekend at night because, you know, email is always there. They can always ping you. They can always get you on Slack. And, you know, you can make a choice to ignore that. But there's an understanding that you're, you know, that you are ignoring it. And some employers don't respond well to that. And then, you know, once we all started working from home, that even eroded the boundaries between, you know, one's work life and private life further. It's all becoming kind of nebulous and I think not in a good way.
1: I mean, that's all the more reason, sorry to interrupt, but I actually think that's all the more reason you're quite right. And the pandemic has kind of made it, uh, these boundaries fuzzy. This is all the more reason that institutions need to be very clearly signaling what they will and will not be policing. and, And that needs to be discussed because it has the potential to become highly authoritarian in terms of watching over what people can say. And that doesn't bode well for us as a society, broadly. We're really going down. I'm not saying we're there yet, but we're certainly beginning to display signs of kind of authoritarian social policing, which is troubling to me. I come from a place back in Pakistan where this is the norm, and it doesn't go down well, ever.
0: Yeah, it strikes me too that we are very slowly sort of sliding away from just uh, questions of what people are allowed to say and into really more abstract questions of what people are allowed to like. A big thing with, with this retweet is that people objected not necessarily to the fact that wiggle amplified this joke but that he found it funny at all and <laughs> obviously there are there are really concerning implications to the idea that you could be uh you know fired or fined or suspended that you could be made to suffer professional financial consequences for having bad taste. And not even bad taste as defined by some objective standard, but bad taste as per the, you know, sensitivities of the most opportunistically offended person who happens to be in your orbit. Um, It's a a really bad road to go down. But I also think that it reveals something troubling about people's sort of positionality when it comes to how they think about Wiggle and how they think about other people as people. The idea that if you find this joke funny, it reveals some secret inner darkness inside your heart and it signals that you actually hate or disrespect women and hence can't work with them.
1: You know, you you, you tweeted this out and I, I really liked it, which is, And I'm quoting you, you said, do we really want to open the door to this notion that being amused by a joke equals publicly telegraphing the secret unemployable woman disrespecting darkness inside your heart, let alone make this workplace policy? I mean, that is the assumptions that are made. Again, one assumption that I critiqued was the assumption of what retweeting itself means. The second assumption is that because you found something funny, you are this woman-hating individual who is creating a toxic work environment, which is actively trying to exclude women or somehow, um, you know, just, just kind of box them in a way that is deeply sexist. Is astonishing. Like we have left that place where we can understand that there is, this is what I was talking about at the beginning about perspective, right? We've, the implications, we jump from point A to point Z without going through anything in between and think that that is a logical leap to make. And that on the basis of that, you can accuse someone of something that's really quite serious. I don't know when this happened, but this is very indicative of our times, I feel. It is increasingly beginning to happen and people pile on then without really stopping and saying, hang on, what's going on over here? So I quoted your tweet because I thought you put it perfectly, which is why are we making this assumption that finding a joke funny means that you're a morally reprehensible individual?
0: I wonder, um, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this, if it maybe has something to do with the sort of overall politicization of art, and comedy is, of course, a form of art, so that increasingly we, we are in a moment where what you like, what you find funny, whether it's, you know, the comedy you like or the movies you enjoy watching, um, you know, and, and not just where you get your news, but what kind of media you consume generally, what musicians you like, what books you read. All of this is now taken to signal something about your identity and about your politics. Are we just seeing the effects of that in any way, do you think? I think you're certainly
1: on to something over there. I think, you know, this is something that I noticed when I first came here about 11 years ago, which is that everything is so goddamn bloody political over here. The way you mow your lawn somehow indicates whether you're a Republican or Democrat and political in the very kind of crass sense of political. And uh, I was amazed by how much of how you conduct yourself in public life uh, or in the public sphere is is signaling what your politics are. I find that strange as someone who's not from here, but it's certainly become worse over the years. But I think something else is at play as well, Kat. I think that we are seeing how people interpret people's behavior as betraying a literal-mindedness that is coming to dominate public discourse right now. We have lost the ability to analyze things in context. Appreciation for context is something that I find has completely declined. People are willing to take the most flat, the most literal interpretation of anything and then go with it, run with it without contextualizing it. This, to my mind, is the most troubling thing. And what I find fascinating is that the U.S. has been at the forefront of criticizing how other societies have done this historically. And now we find this happening right here. And that is deeply disturbing because it means that instead of Us holding on to our ability to uh, engage with nuance, to put things in context, we are going down a route where context has become irrelevant and we are prone to making assumptions, prone to making leaps of logic that really are not healthy for public discourse.
0: This is bad not only for individuals who are attempting to be fully human and also remain employed, at least in in certain fields. but also that it's bad for um, a lot of sort of public-facing, you know, for for the way that we that we talk, for the the sort of national discourse. It's bad for art, which increasingly is not allowed to indulge in nuance or in sort of nebulous morality. Um, I have a friend who wrote a, a work of fiction um, that is a satire. Uh, her name's Lee Stein. She wrote the novel Self-Care. Mm-hmm. And she's observed that um, satire is increasingly, because of this literal mindedness that you have been describing, it's increasingly impossible to write it um, because people are not willing to engage with the, the sort of messier, abstract interpretations of that form of writing. They want to take it all completely seriously, completely earnestly, and 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 a very uncharitable way.
1: Yes. And I think it is a sign that we are becoming a humorless society, frankly. And in a society where you can't have satire, satire has actually been historically one of the most powerful ways of speaking truth to power. It's been used historically by dissenting voices in a way that can fly under the radar, but still make you know trenchant critiques of how things are being done. And if we're moving into a space, it's the thing that threatens people in power the most. And what's fascinating to me is that the people who are fighting against satire or reducing the space for satire have historically been the people who have been trying to create more room for it because they recognize what a powerful tool it is to critique power. Yeah, you're right. We, we we are losing the ability to be humorous. We're losing the ability to be satirical. And when art is beginning to be policed, I think that is even more dangerous than anything else, because art is one of the freest places where you can have expressions of dissent, where it is so deeply interpretive that it can it can critique without being um, pilloried. But we're, we're narrowing that scope. And we're definitely seeing that we are dictating what art can be that is fundamentally anti-imagination and anti-creativity so we we're no longer talking about art we're talking about very prescribed ways of saying how people can perform and this touches on something else which is the entire performative aspect of um claims like the one that Sanmez is making, which is how far are these, you know, what is the veracity of what you're saying and how far are you just saying it? Because it's a position that you've learned uh, performing and one that actually yields social capital. It gives you political capital in your social context because other people are going to pile on.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point that, you know, you have in one case, a statement that's made in an attempt to elicit laughter, and then another statement, perhaps no less performative, that it is made in an attempt to elicit a very particular sort of sympathy. Oh, there was something that you had said that I wanted to get back to. Um, Oh, about how policing art is a very essentially a policing truth. Whenever you have somebody who's trying to shut down art or to to you know narrow the parameters of what art is allowed to do or allowed to discuss, that person is inevitably that is a person in power whether they want to admit that they are or not. You know, there's nothing that power hates more than satire. Right. Um, I wondered how you see this playing out in you know closer to home in your own field in academia Knowing the value of dissent and understanding that dissent is sort of I shouldn't even say sort of, it's absolutely necessary to reaching truths. You know, people have to have the ability to to ask questions and to even be wrong, offensively wrong, mm-hmm. um, if they if they are so inclined along the way in order to arrive at a place where we understand things better. So do you see this sort of chilling conversations that happen in your classroom? Do you see it happening amongst your students? What's going on there? Oh, Kat, I could talk about this ad nauseam. <laughs> uh,
1: yes, is the quick and easy and strong answer to this. I see it happening all the time. You know, I've, I've been teaching in the U.S. for the last 11 years. Over this you know, slightly over a decade, I've seen students become quieter in the classroom. I've had more and more students come to me privately in my office hours and say they wanted to say something in class, but they didn't articulate it in the classroom because they're worried about the social censure that follows. So it's not so much my disapproval as a professor that they worry about. They're actually worried about their peers, which is very indicative of the kind of authoritarian thinking that is beginning to take root. It's not even beginning to it actually has taken root on college campuses. And I I don't want to be that simplistic about it and say it's just conservative voices that are being silenced. It's not conservative voices only. The irony is that even students who are very left of center, who are liberal, who are self-censoring because they worry that they are not towing the kind of dominant, hyper, for the lack of a better word, I don't like using it, but the hyper-woke position that uh, actually a small minority has on campus, but they're a very vocal minority. So it seems like the dominant position. And as part of this, or to try and fend it off, I've tried several strategies within my classroom, the most recent one where I tell students that we're going to play a game throughout the entire term where... I should always perpetually be confused about what their political stance on something is. So they're supposed to try on different positions. And I've had students tell me that they found it very liberating because it allows them to not be judged by their peers. So so that's one dimension, I'll say, that I find it really Shocking how much of this is going on on campuses where students are
0: policing each other, I have to say, I just want to interject that i I love the the image that I get of these students sort of um, you know coming into your classroom as though it 's one of these sort of mystery dinner theaters where you know anybody might be the killer and <laughs> you, you'd never you never know who it is <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, actually, you know the idea came to me, I was traveling. In the winter back home, and I was playing with my children and my nieces and nephews, um, Cluedo, which I think in the US is called Clue, where a character has murdered. And that's when it, it occurred to me that there's something to be said for never quite knowing what someone's position is. And that's what I worked into my classroom then. And I was like, let's play this game where we never really know what your political position is. So you're quite right to pick up on the mystery element of it. And I'm I'm definitely cashing in on that because that's the only way that my students can actually feel liberated to speak their minds when they don't fear that people see them as speaking their minds. And that's a really, really damning indictment of what Campus climate really is. So so that's one thing that I'll say by way of students and culture on campus. I think then there's the other issue that is happening, which is faculty and especially tenured faculty in tenure is something that is coming under attack, um, well, not everywhere, but in some of the red states for now. and But tenured faculty don't feel emboldened to, to cultivate the space for dissent. And that's exactly what tenure is for. It's precisely, it's the only profession, academia, in which once you get tenure, you have a job for as long as you want to be in it. And the reason you can't be fired for articulating your point of view is precisely because You're supposed to act as the conscience of society in some way, and you're supposed to be able to say things that other people are fearful to articulate. It has to be a space for open inquiry. That is certainly not the case anymore. I find that faculty, especially tenured faculty, are increasingly keeping quiet. And this is not least because we do have a situation where administration is getting increasingly more powerful. And it's not just about administration being there to support the mission of higher education, and facilitate faculty inquiry. Rather, it's more about putting faculty in line with what the institutional stance on something is. And that's dangerous. That's very, very dangerous because you're limiting academic freedom. And that's not that, you know, unrelated to freedom of expression. Um, so between these two things in terms of how emboldened faculty feel to speak out and how emboldened students feel to speak out, I mean, both, both on both counts,
0: I think, Colleges and universities are not doing really well. Yeah, something that sort of ties back to the discussion of how this affects labor issues um, and something that I have been not following as closely as I should because I'm not in academia, but that I find concerning, especially because I, I think that it has implications that may, you know, it's, it's a virus that may spread, um, is that increasingly people who want to teach at universities are being asked to sign these statements or to or to write their own statements in support of very kind of particular diversity, equity, and inclusion agenda that are being used as, I mean, it's essentially being asked to sign a loyalty oath, uh, or at least it seems that way to me. And I found that really disturbing when I realized how, not just that it was happening, but how widespread it is, It is happening.
1: It's very widespread. I've written on this issue. It's something that I feel very strongly about. I feel like the way we're thinking about diversity, equity and inclusion is highly ideological. It's very narrow. And it is a political litmus test when you ask people to sign these kinds of statements. And, you know, there have been institutions where People have been evaluated for job positions, not first on the basis of their credentials and their qualifications, but rather on the basis of whether they meet particular diversity metrics, which are very narrowly defined, and they look at their commitment to what they see as diversity issues. And that is fundamentally anti-intellectual. We are in an intellectual Space. We are on a a ship, if you will, which is all about teaching people to think freely. But we are narrowing the scope for who we are inducting in onto the ship as part of the crew, because we are choosing what points of view those people will have. That that undermines the entire enterprise of free inquiry and um,
0: training our students to think critically. So, I'm going to just briefly um, try to to steel man this position that I don't agree with, but um, I'm curious what your response would be. Obviously, there is a rejoinder to this that says, well, a college, especially a private college, uh, is allowed to set whatever parameters it likes, you know, can it require like they, they can require you to sign one of these loyalty oaths if they want you to. Um, what is the the best argument against? that there's always a suggestion, well, you know, they're just expressing their right to free speech in, you know, curtailing or narrowing the range of acceptable speech. How how do you respond to that?
1: So, you know, A, this argument that you've still manned would only apply to private institutions. So just Mm -hmm. to be clear about that. Yes, private institutions can dictate the terms of what is acceptable discourse on campus or not. However, and here is where it comes in. Most private institutions indicate in their faculty handbooks that they adhere to the lines uh, articulated by the American Association of University Professors, which protects academic freedom. And they also mostly tend to indicate that they will not go or run afoul of um, First Amendment principles. Now, there's a reason they do this. They don't have to do this, but... On the whole, most private institutions do this, except for those that have a religious um, denomination. The reason they do this is because they recognize that in order to serve the mission of higher education, you have to provide that freedom. And my argument to this uh, position would be, well, yes, you can dictate in terms of legally, you can stipulate what can and can't be said on your campus or what positions are kosher or not kosher. But what it is doing is it's fundamentally undermining the main mission of what the institution is out there to do, which is to train students in critical thinking. There are others who think the main mission of the university is truth-searching. I have a critique of that, but I won't go into that right now. But even if it is truth-searching, my point is, if it, we're trying to seek the truth, you can't do it if you're going to dictate what is an acceptable position on campus or not. And for that reason, so yes, legally you can stipulate certain positions are off bands, But because we are interested in either supporting critical thinking or the search for truth, such a stipulation fundamentally undermines the key heart of the mission of higher education. And that is why we cannot have it.
0: Yeah, this actually reminds me in certain ways. um, I think one of the big proponents of the truth telos in higher education is Jonathan Haidt. Correct. Um, And uh, when you were talking about the legality versus the, um, the wisdom of doing this. It reminded me of this other thought experiment that he has written about where you know, you're trying to articulate why a man shouldn't buy a raw chicken at the grocery store, take it home and have sex with it, where it's like he's technically not hurting anyone yeah. Um, he's allowed to do this. Yeah. And yet we really don't want to live in a society where everybody is buying raw chickens at the grocery store and taking them home and having sex with them, because that's corrosive in a fundamental way to our norms and, you know, who we're trying to be as human beings.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, we sometimes get stuck in these kind of hair splitting about what is legally allowed or not allowed, or, you know, what, what is the letter of the law, even within legal circles, it's, it's established, you know, there's the letter of the law. And then there's the spirit of the law. And the spirit should really override uh, an adherence to the letter of the law because humans are fundamentally constrained by language and language has to be interpreted and you can interpret it in narrow and wider ways. And Frankly, the bottom line is we need to be truthful, truthful to the mission of any institution. And if the mission is being compromised because of a flat interpretation of the letter of the law, then it's time to revisit the letter of the law. This is why, in legal circles, you have like precedents which override prior understandings. You have a revision and a reform of legal language. This is a constant and ongoing process. So, the, and the reason it's constant and ongoing is precisely because we're trying to get closer and closer towards adhering to the spirit of the law and remaining true to the intention as opposed to the way it was articulated in a, a set of words at a particular point in time.
0: So I want to talk about something that's a little bit more abstract. Um, and you know, I think that, ironically, the way that we're trying to constantly sort of impose new rules and, and to try to find order in, in new rules, new rules mm-hmm. about... Uh, how to define things, how people can speak or should speak, what terms to use, that um, this is being done, at least in part, to a sort of a continual erosion of social trust, um, that, you know, the less of that we have, the more we, suspect each other. We suspect each other of ill will, ill intent. Mm-hmm. Um, and we try to constrain this sort of fearful, unknowable darkness inside other people's minds by imposing rules from the outside But you know, about what they can and can't say as though this will like seep inward and, and affect what they can and can't think. I wanted to ask if you see any correlation between the increasing lack of in-person interaction and the increasing prevalence of these sort of attempts to police what other people are saying and the sort of how they think about other people. One of the really notable aspects of this um, retweet by Dave Wagle was that people felt that he was, you know, he was betrayed that he was thinking bad thoughts, you know, <laughs> sort of in the privacy of his, of his own mind. Um, and it, it struck me that this is something that might, have been in certain ways bound to happen as his coworkers see him face to face less and less. Perhaps there are some who were agitating for his suspension who have never met him face to face. Is there anything to that? Do you think?
1: I mean, you know, Kat, I think face to face interaction cannot be replaced by online interaction. That's just true. And I think there are certain ways in which being online um, brings out, uh, and this kind of social media interaction without face-to-face interaction brings out perhaps the darker sides of people or the meaner sides of people. Having said that, I don't think that we should see it as a zero-sum game. You know, I think there are people who are modeling excellent behavior on social media. And this is what I'd say. I say people need to stick up more and, and kind of the trouble is people think it, but they quietly won't engage in the conversation. And one of the reasons I stayed off social media for a very long time, I think I only went on last year. And one of the things that eventually convinced me to go on was I i, I was like, I need to be on there to model how you engage in constructive conversation and also to show how you disengage from conversations that are not constructive and perhaps that I think is where people are going wrong is that they keep going on into these rabbit holes of it's not going to improve you have to know where to cut it and step away from it and to say like you know I'm I'm cutting this loose now because it's not productive or constructive anymore. So I think you're right to say that I think there is a correlation between reduced face to face interaction, but I don't think we should see it as a fate accompli that just because we're interacting on social media, we must descend or we will inevitably descend into these um, depraved ways of engagement. I actually think that we more of us need to step up to the plate and model that you can have sane positive, um, and constructive conversations, even on social media. Of course, it doesn't replace in-person interaction. And I think not seeing people face-to-face does p- make people meaner. But I've also noticed I've had people you know, on Twitter say nasty things to me, and then I'll respond as hard as it is by saying, hey, thank you for your engagement. I appreciate what you're pointing out, but here is my... And suddenly it disarms people. So if we can just be a little more generous in our understanding that people are reacting and just take the slightly higher moral ground it opens up space for more productive conversations.
0: Yes, it strikes me that what you're describing is the transition from a performative stance where you're, you know, you're engaging with somebody technically but what you're really doing is signaling, you know, your own feelings, your own thoughts and you know perhaps your own um virtue on a given issue um, to actually engaging, you know, where it's not just a one way you're actually hearing what the other person is saying and that is it is certainly possible for that to happen on social media um albeit maybe rarer than it should be
1: yes and and it's harder i won't i won't say it's equally easy i mean when you're meeting in person that there are other things that um you know social mores and norms and etiquette that do dictate how you will interact and and those kind of fall by the wayside when you're facing a screen Um, having said that, I think more of us need to be on there doing exactly this and it's, it's, it is harder,
0: but it's not undoable. So I want to ask you one last question, um, sort of returning to the the broad strokes of this joke, the question of, of Mm. bad taste of, you know, of having a bad sense of humor, um, and what this may or may not say about you as a person. So you mentioned that you come from, a culture or a a country where norms are are more repressive. Is there any correlation in your experience between the, the authoritarian nature of a culture, the narrowness of what you're perceived to be allowed to engage with, to find funny, to enjoy, and the way that people might seek out more subversive or more offensive material? Yeah, this is interesting. You know,
1: at one level, I think this kind of authoritarian policing of what people can and can't say and of humor and satire in particular, is it, it, it's troubling, it's very dangerous, and I think it is indicative of of where you are as a society. Having said that, I have just unflinching faith in human creativity. And I think the more repressive an environment gets, the more creative people will be in terms of finding a way to express themselves. You cannot kill human expression. And you will find more and more subversive ways and more and more interesting ways in which people will do it. Um, And they will find a way. So I firmly believe in human curiosity. I've seen having grown up under a series of military dictatorships. And mind you, this is not a situation only of military dictatorships, there's also a lot of religious authoritarianism in Pakistan. So it's, you know, political and religious authoritarianism coming together and converging creates a very repressive and restrictive space. But some of them best art that was produced, both in terms of, I'm talking about visual art, I'm talking about performance art, I'm talking about um, comedy, uh, that was produced in Pakistan was actually produced in the most repressive eras, precisely because you had to find a way in which you could be safe in terms of being um, sanctioned, uh, but at the same time be able to convey what you're trying to say. There are times when, Kat, I frankly feel that Free societies create their own, you know, once a society becomes free, it almost has to create its own um, unfreedoms in order to begin to value freedom again and begin to reassert the need to be free again, because you stop appreciating what it means. And it does it does kind of hamper human creativity when you're allowed to say anything. So not to say that we should now be, you know, I don't want to be misconstrued. I'm not arguing for authoritarianism, but I am saying that I have an undying faith in people's ability to find new and interesting ways to express themselves. And expression will always find a way out. It's like one of those rivers, you know, you can't, you can't dam it. (laughs) It'll find another, another little way to meander away from the dam and, and come through.
0: Yes. I always, when I'm, when I'm feeling sort of low about the direction things are taking, I like to remind myself that from repression comes punk rock, inevitably. (laughs) Yes. Um, In in whatever form it might take. Exactly. Um, Amna, thank you so much for joining me. And this has been Feminine Chaos.